Hello and welcome to our Classic Music Podcast Extra. I'm Lawrence Lewis. This edition is devoted to a conversation with conductor Jakob Grusche, recently appointed music director at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden. I met up with Jakob in one of Covent Garden's many coffee houses and it's presented with minimal editing. Okay, Jakob, it's great to meet up with you and, and have this talk about your career to date, maybe, and what you're looking forward to in the future. You've, you've got this position at the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, which you're going to begin in 2025. You must be uh, aware that this is an awesome responsibility. It is an awesome responsibility and... Um it is also an honor and a great pleasure to work with those people there. Uh, of course, we have plans uh, roughly till 2030, um, of which I can't reveal anything, obviously. <laughs> I know about which composers I will start with in terms of uh, programs. Some of them have been revealed. I can repeat those names today again. It's Puccini. It's Janáček, it's Wagner, it's Britain, Prokofiev. What's the Britain? I cannot say that, obviously. If I could, I would have already <laughs> a month or so ago. But it'll all be artistically extremely satisfying and beautifully challenging and uh, very important stuff, so to speak. You are coming coming to this position in a in a period of great economic uncertainty. Opera is incredibly expensive and involves so many different facets and it's a bit like the film industry in a way. It's a kind of collective thing. Um, is that something you, you're going to bear in mind when you put all this together? Of course. I mean, it, it's come... Um, we have to live with it and we have to try every one of us to influence the things in the best way we could. What is absolutely certain, and I have a feeling that all people around, despite how expensive opera is, are aware that it's an indispensable genre and without support doesn't exist anymore. And if the genre is represented um, you know, in a way which matters, it's by the Royal Opera House. So, of course, this is something which needs to be repeated endlessly and you know, reflected in all actions around. But of course, it's an easy talk <laughs> and it's a difficult uh, thing to do always despite all possible things which we live with. But um, as I said, I think for our human society, opera as a genre is something which uh, reflects so much of uh, what we are as a human being, so much of a tradition and so much of the potentially um, stimulating presence, you know, artistically considered theatre in general. And this kind of theatre which gets combined with music uh, in such an excellent way. You know, this is, as I said a minute ago, a genre which needs to stay in a, in a proper form. And Royal Opera House must be the place where it's represented in, an ex in, in all excellence. Of course, a lot of people would say, you know, that uh, a Royal Opera House gobbles up a lot of money 
and that you know why why are we bothering with such an expensive outing because if we get rid of it we never get get it back and humanity will lose one of the most fantastic results of its existence you know it's exactly one of those things which once you touch it once you get it away um, it's basically impossible to get it back so it the, the loss is i- irreparable and uh, the beauty of uh, this genre when it's done well as well as in Royal Opera House is something which everyone who experienced that in its excellence once or several times will never forget and knows how precious it is so it's one of those things which are expensive but uh, indispensable you're saying it's indispensable how are you going to get new audiences to come into the opera house when they people may look at the websites of the royal opera house and see the the fantastic price of the tickets and say well that's not for me how how are you going to get get people in yeah it's a teamwork definitely it's not something i can answer in a podcast on a personal level you know of course we have to have a look at it uh, together i'm not uh, a semi god <laughs> who is able to solve this question but of course it will be on the table and we'll discuss what to do of course this affects uh, all arts organizations whether they're theater orchestras or whatever sure absolutely but it's especially precious in the royal opera house of course now you are somewhat distant from a previous czech conductor who had quite a career at the royal opera house did did you ever personally meet rafael kubelik no i was too young and i was living in a different part of the country when he came back in 1990 when he came back from his 40 years emigration so to speak and gave amazing concerts um in prague at the prague spring festival in may that year so i was basically nine years old and i wouldn't have traveled as far at that time it only came later and then his health deteriorated pretty uh, immediately actually he had stopped conducting before he came back he was officially uh, retiring because he had uh, troubles with his um uh, with his body basically um and it was uh, a short uh time resurrection of this amazing conductor to those concerts were shown on the television and that's what i saw so i didn't meet him personally but i remember watching as i think everyone loving music uh, in our country back then i was watching the broadcast in may 1990 and kubelik came a year later to do the new world symphony uh, with the czech phil and there was a documentary about it and it was all very stimulating but indeed i came to uh, a musical public life so to speak a little bit later and at that time kubelik wasn't um, active anymore but um, if there is a figure in the 20th century of music history to uh, whom i could maybe try to link myself or where to take the inspiration from um, and in whose steps somehow i'm in my own way uh, continuing uh, it would be him and um, it's very moving when i go to orchestras where people still remember him uh, lately it happened to me in the new york philharmonic for example when um, several players reminded me that i 
uh, was something similar to them, like Kubrick, you know, that kind of an experience with a maestro of that er part of uh, the earth. And uh, it's very moving, actually, to be uh, speaking to people who remember him about what uh, similarities we have or what differences and so on. So he is a figure also from the recordings, of course, of plenty of which we have uh, available. Uh, it's beautiful to be connected to him virtually. Last time I did Lohengrin in the Royal Opera House, I remember being very moved listening to his own recording of this piece, and that happens to me quite often. He was an amazing artist. Do you think we spend too much time comparing conductors of Kubelik's period to conductors of the present? I don't know. There's no too much, no too little. I mean, everyone's different. If someone needs to compare, be it so. I find a lot of inspiration in, in the old times of conducting, but also uh, tricky inspiration. I mean, knowing what those days were like. I mean, as all days of our lives, you know, some things were amazing because some results the conductors of those days got from the orchestras and opera houses were just absolutely fascinating. But also the way they did it sometimes was not acceptable uh, by our standards these days. It's not Kubelik, but there were so many horrid maestros who abused really the orchestra players to get the right result, as well as fantastic and kind maestros. So I think, you know, we have to be ourselves and everyone gets what everyone needs from the past, from the present and from the planning of the future. <laughs> turn the conversation to something that that uh, you've, you've promoted quite heavily and I know you've done many performances of the Azrael Symphony by Josef Suk. Now this this is a, a, a work that has lots of connotations and it's written in a very tragic period of the composer's life uh, but it's also contemporary with Mahler and early Schoenberg and yet for some reason it, it just doesn't click with the public? It clicks fantastically with the public. Every time it's played, it clicks 100%. Where it doesn't click is with the tame presenters, especially in the areas where you have to sell the classical music. So as soon as people arrive in the concert hall, 
and overcome the feeling that there is an item which they don't know, they're always enthusiastic. I have never yet experienced a performance with the Sukh Azrael Symphony, which would not have been successful. Actually, it's always a, a huge revelation. So I think the not clicking with the public is only a, a bias or a kind of prejudice. It's always when you play something you are convinced about, you know, uh, you're convinced about the quality, but the public wouldn't know exactly what it is, especially if it's from the past. It's The main task is to overcome the 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 primary reflection of that kind that the audience says well there must be a reason why this piece isn't as known as the others those reasons are often objectively understandable for me in case of Suk symphony i've been asking i've asked myself repeatedly why it's the case because i know it's a masterpiece Absolutely. comparable to Mahler strauss uh, Skriabin and uh, you know Rachmaninoff and so on uh, and there is a beautiful story behind it uh, beautiful to you know explain what's the piece about not beautiful as, as such because it's tragic as you said but beautifully present for uh, what we call today is uh, you know PR or marketing because there's a, there's a fantastic story behind it. Do you, do you think it's because it wasn't championed by one of one of the great conductors of the past, say like Toscanini or Bruno Walter? Uh, could have been the case, yes. Uh, Mahler himself was very interested in Souk, but he died basically before he came to conduct the um, the music. Of course, he's even of the older generation than the names you mentioned. But indeed, I think also uh, Suk, even compared to Mahler and Strauss, was in some way at the time of the creation of the pieces a little um, too traditional in using uh, the musical language. You know, he was like a very last stage of the late Romanticism. There's this beautiful story about Janáček and Suk who supported each other. Janáček was, by the way, 20 years older than Josef Suk. It's very interesting to compare these data with uh, the style of their music. Um, and they supported each other, and they composed completely differently, of course, each of them. And at one point, uh, pieces of both of them should have been put on uh, a program in Brno. I think it was some splendid, important concert. And Janáček commented, and I paraphrase because I don't have the quote exactly, but he said, well, it's kind of a difficult for me to have my music placed to a, next to a real composer, by which he meant he is the one who still composes with all virtues and demands of the old style, you know, like with the uh, dense harmony and worked out uh, polyphony and... Uh, uh, heavy orchestration and so on and that was a little old-fashioned at that time already I mean we know it about Strauss who was considered old-fashioned at the beginning of the 20th century I mean not at the time of composing Don Juan and uh, Eulenspiegel and Salome but later and so I think I know how um, Elgar has the same uh, reputation you know at many places so these amazing composers who 
kind of uh, were dealing with music as something they inherited and moving it forward without revolutionary and extremely radical steps such as Janáček on the other hand who really jumped forward into modernity um, but I think ultimately the main reason why this piece or Suk in general um, uh, has it difficult is that he's extremely almost unbearably personal and subjective and that's combination of a relatively difficult musical language combined with of extremely heavy loaded personal emotion is actually not easy to bear for many uh, people unless they witness an amazingly convincing performance you know it's not music which you would just play at home from a cd player or you know from um, spotify these days while you're cooking it's impossible you have to focus you have to invest a lot of your emotionality which in the concert hall when the performance is convincing is the most beautiful thing to do and the reward is amazing but the the main thing is to get people to the concert hall and then they usually are won by the qualities of the piece Some of those qualities that you've mentioned apply also to Martinu and Victor Calabas. Uh, Martinu, yes, although Martinu is much lighter to bear. I mean, it, there's much more essence of entertainment in it, and it's it's kind of lighter in its character. It there there is uh, not as much uh, burden of personal emotion there. I think he wanted. To some extent, he wanted to stimulate, of course, to provoke, but to please also. And uh, I have a feeling, Martinu. You know, it, it's a. I have a different kind of feeling when I speak about Suk and Martinu because I think Suk is really, for me, a phenomenon similar to Gustav Mahler. You know, who also for some period wasn't as adored as we do adore him these days. It took some time to understand his music. Uh, and I think uh, he really was composing that is Suk now with uh, like every note he wrote with his amazing talent I think was one of the most naturally talented people I um, know about from 
the history of music. I mean, as a child, he was prodigious. Um, but I think, you know, that piece and that composer needs a very personal advocacy. Whereas Martinu, I think, every now and then there is uh, a wave of interest. His symphonies would get played, you know, would get um, a beautiful attention here and there. But I don't think they need like a, an exceptionally heavy promotion. They ha they have won a certain place in the canon of the 20th century music, which I think is about right. And as long as there are people who love music of Martino as I do, uh, it will always survive. Also because he was so incredibly um, versatile and composed so much. Of, uh, I mean, hundreds of compositions. There will be always. Uh, aficionados of uh, of Marginu, uh, on the part of public and of course artists themselves, chamber music and uh, choral pieces and operas, uh, which is an interesting topic. You know, there are some fantastic ones. Are you thinking about Marginu for the Royal Opera? I am thinking about Marginu in general, and I think it would be worth uh, considering. Uh, I mean, especially given the history of the Greek passion, which was not the easiest one uh, in the 50s uh, here in London. I think there are pieces like that or Julietta or Miracles of Mary or Ariane, uh, you know, or, you know, Comedy on the Bridge. And there are so many, I mean, he's got really fantastic theatre pieces, but especially the Greek Passion and Julietta are masterpieces, I think. And Victor Calabas, he, he's a bit of an outsider. Yes, true. Uh, one of his descendants, so to speak. Yeah, I've done some pieces of his. Uh, yeah, there are. There is quite a row of Czech composers of the 20th century, which uh, who would rightly be supported. Kalabis is one of them. I would name Miroslav Kabelac, who is definitely not an opera composer, but a fantastic symphonicist. He wrote that fantastic piece with the soprano. The symphony. symphony number five and Mystery of Time and all symphonies. Uh, he's got eight symphonies, are amazing. I think he's the most important symphonicist uh, of Czech lands uh, after Martinu. Another one is uh, Vladimir Sommer and his vocal symphony, which is an amazing piece I'll do with the Czech Philharmonic soon. Arguably the most important choral piece uh, at about mid 20th century. So uh, there are so many. I mean, it's it's difficult, especially when you go abroad and uh, want to present something from your heritage, not to overload people with uh, too much, because there's so much inspiration in every country. Do you find when you when you do do these concerts in Europe and America that the organisers always ask you for a Czech piece? Not always, uh, but very naturally. So um, there's always a level of discussion about that area. I usually combine it with some non-Czech pieces or I do like a Czech-focused program once I appear and then a very universally talking concert at another occasion and then I bring something interesting. What I'm trying to combine also that it's not always the most famous pieces like the New World Symphony. It's occasionally problematic on tour because the touring business anyway very fragile these days often needs um, 
the absolutely most famous pieces to sell well. I've just come from uh, a beautiful tour to Hamburg, Elb Philharmonie and Spain with the Bamberg Symphony. We had like seven or eight concerts and of course we played Dvořák eight and nine because the presenters so much needed it to sell the halls and they were sold beautifully and they had a fantastic success. But if you conduct locally, like in a local series or um, if you're responsible for a house, I think it's good to stimulate with some items which are a little less normally less exposed because it's not I don't f I never feel like a specialist or something like that anyone can take those pieces and do them well but there is an incredibly beautiful and authentic emotional uh, and natural link of myself to those pieces so I I'm aware of their quality and as I always say actually the essence of what the conductor should do with the orchestras and the publics is to share what he or she loves that's basically our job you know, we, we share our loves in practice well it's beautiful because we get applause for it and uh, we're paid for it as well and have good feeling but it's like in everything in life when we discover some quality and beauty we want to share it with other people that's basically what I'm doing whether it's Czech music or any other music Jakob th thank you for sharing those those insights with us and uh, I hope you have the most wonderful success at the Royal Opera House and everything else you do. Thank you very much. Thank you. The music used during our conversation with conductor Jakob Rusha came from his recording of Josef Suk's Azrael Symphony with the Tokyo Metropolitan Symphony Orchestra.